death in care, regardless of how it comes about, especially if you've grown very close with the, the family, it's as if you're losing your own family. Hi, I'm Toby Ali Osman, founder of Smooth Digital, and this is Tea with Toby, the podcast that shines the light on the care sector and helps businesses, staff, and care workers provide the very best care. The past year has been the most challenging in the history of the care sector. The UK care industry has experienced over 20,000 COVID-related deaths. Dozens of staff have died. Last June alone, nearly all of the COVID-19-related deaths were in care homes. So we decided for season four, we want to shine a spotlight on 2020. We wanted to look at the timeline of events, analyze why 2020 was so difficult, highlight the incredible people who saved care and understand what needs to be done for the care industry going forward. In the upcoming season, we will hear from carers, academics, CEOs, industry leaders and analysts. We will get a first-hand account of life on the front line. We'll review the effectiveness of the government's response and we'll discuss how the care industry has changed by the pandemic, what we can do to protect the sector for 2021 and most importantly, we will hear how the industry stood together in times of illness and social distancing with solidarity and compassion. Please join me in this very special season of Tea with Toby. On this special episode of Tea with Toby, we have two guests. I wanted to get an insight of what life was really like on the front line directly from the mouths of carers themselves. So I spoke to living carer and trainer Zuva Chinari and care assistant stroke founder of Meet My Brian, which is a sponsor of Tea with Toby, Jijo Johnny. In the first half of the show, we will hear Zuva relay her experiences of the past 12 months. She will explain why death in care feels like losing a family member and how damaging classifying care work as unskilled is to the sector. And in part two of the show, Jija will inform us on what life was really like in care homes during lockdown, how Meet My Brain can help solve the problem of visitation during a pandemic. And Jijo shares the horrifying story of when him, his wife and newborn son all contracted COVID-19. But first, let's hear from Zuva and why she started a career in care. Zuva, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Like, um, I, it's so weird because I watch your podcast on YouTube. So to be on it, it's like such a surreal experience. Awesome. It's, I think we're going to learn so much from your perspective and I think it really does need to be heard. So I'm excited myself as well. But let's start with this. Let's start with um, why did you choose a career in care? Um, at the time when I started, so this was back in 2015, um, previously I had health problems. So this was between 2009 till about 2015, I was in and out of hospital a lot. And that experience of having people look after me showed me what good care looks like because I believe those people looked after me very, very well. Um, And then when it came to 2015, I did want to do something else with my life because I've done different jobs throughout and I've worked in warehouses and all that kind of stuff. Then I felt I really wanted to make 
to do something with myself that I would feel, you know, it really actually matters. Awesome. So let's rewind back in time. And if you can help describe the situation, let's say December of 2019, what was going on with work? How many people were you caring for? At that time, um, so I was doing living care work. I'd sort of go from home to home. I wasn't with one client um, all the time. So I might do a few weeks here and then a few months there, that type of stuff. But at that time, back in, in fact, all of 2019, I was going from different homes and I wanted to do that to gain as much experience in living care as possible, work with different kind of clients. Awesome. So the question, when was the first time you heard the words COVID-19? COVID-19, I did hear it. We did hear it um, in around about December when it was being talked about in China. But um, in terms of as living carers, I don't think it was taken quite seriously until about February of 2020. Um, into yeah, in 2020, early parts of 2020. I think when we first heard about it, we just thought it's a thing happening in China and, you know, it's not going to, well, we just thought it's a thing happening in China, really, nothing else. But it started being taken more seriously, particularly with like the agencies that I was working with around about February, uh, I would say, 2020. Yeah, I, I, yeah. can, I can agree with that. What, when are the, um, so I, I, pro- I try not to listen to the news as much as possible. So I think I heard about it in January of 2020, say about mid-January. Um, I was in I was in the open plan, I was in an open plan kitchen in the office. So we have a shared service office. I was actually overhearing someone else's conversation. And one thing that I did notice, there was absolutely no fear in their voice. It wasn't, they didn't seem worried. And it was quite dismissive as well. So I wonder if if we all understood what this would be. I can speak for myself, definitely. No, I didn't see it. I mean, look, almost like one year later or whatever it is, we're still here. I never would have thought this would happen. Definitely not. How did it first affect your your role? And how did it affect the people you cared for? Initially, um, I think the big effects came when the first lockdown was announced which was what, April, I think it was. Yeah, I was already in a placement, so I was quite okay because either way, the placement I was in, we weren't going outdoors anyways. So it wasn't that big a deal. But for some carers, a lot actually, they're sort of in a placement, let's say about to finish. Um, and then they were asked, look, please, can you're going to have to stay longer than you had planned for because it was safer to keep them there than bring in somebody else. So for some carers, they ended up working. I know one lady, she's finishing in January, well, at the end of this January, 2021. And she's been with this person since about, I think it was about May or something. Uh, So she had to just stay. Um, So that's the big effect that it had. And then in terms of people who were receiving care, especially elderly people with dementia, some people you, you can explain to them that, oh, no, this is what's happening uh, there's a lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. But they still don't understand why they can't see their family. And I think for me, witnessing that, that's been the biggest effect. Forget PPE and all these other issues that that were there. It's just 
the fact that people could no longer see their families and have that connection that they used to have before the lockdown, that was the biggest effect for people who were receiving care, especially elderly people, because they really rely on that family support. And, you know, even if it's friends, whatever, but people that they're close to, it's so, so important for them. And now because they couldn't visit each other as normal, that had a huge effect on a lot of people that I personally worked with. So let's stay on this subject for a little bit. I think it was actually March the 16th, 2020, when the first lockdown was announced. So let's let's focus on that period. What was one of the most challenging times for you during that first lockdown? I was quite lucky the placement I had at that time. It was, again, like I said, an elderly lady who stays indoors all the time. So it wasn't so much a challenge from my perspective, but I know like speaking to other carers, they had bigger challenges because for them, family members, they've got family members that they would have had. And this is a thing affecting everybody. So suddenly, okay, I'm here at work looking after somebody, but I don't know how my own family's doing. And that brought distress to people. Um, especially people that have children. So for the people that don't know about living care, this is literally carers who had a plan that they were going to stay for a period um, and look after someone. And then because of the lockdown, they were forced to stay there for an extended period and they couldn't go back to actually see their family. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, the the life of a living carer, yes, you're going to, you know, you're going to somebody's house for a week or months or whatever it is anyways, except this time there was no choice of having to leave. Eventually things did get better, but initially it was kind of like, look, everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Please, can you just stay? And it just kind of made sense. But the distress still of not being able to um, see their own family members, that choice kind of been taken away from them temporarily, even though it was a temporary thing, it still did bring a lot of people, you know, anxiety and distress and that sort of stuff. Well, it was super tough. And what about the people you cared for? So around the time of the lockdown, that's when things really dialed up from a social distancing element, PPE element, isolation element. How did it impact the people you cared for? The people you, uh, the people we cared for, it was more, especially I think I'll, if you're working with people with dementia, because I remember I had a lady at one point who had vascular dementia, which, which meant that, um, her short term memory was quite, was sort of going. So, I mean, you could have a conversation and she understood whatever we're talking about, but just not understand, oh, why am I not seeing my daughter again? Why is she not here? And then constantly having to, repeat that to them because obviously her short-term memory is gone but then also them feeling in the moment they might be able to understand what you said that oh yes there's a lockdown so she can't come you know because this is what's happening all over the country but eventually you start to see them feel like it's being prevented from them that you know they can't they're not being allowed to see their family not because they don't well, they've understood what you said, but for them, it, it actually begins to feel like it's a punishment. Mm. You know, one of the things that personally made me upset, or just watching that, is how difficult it was for them to not to, to not see 
their family that they're used to seeing all the time, or even just even your neighbor not popping in so frequently, you know, those small changes made a big difference, especially to elderly people because routine is so important for them. So have you got any examples of where some of your colleagues or yourself went really above and beyond within providing the very best care you can during that period? I think the most um, people did was really getting people connected because a lot of elderly people like Facebook and video technology, you know, that's like a whole different world for them. So I really saw a lot of people making sure that, look, what can we do to make, to keep people connected to their families? And so if it meant people teach, uh, teaching people how to use Facebook um, or how to use WhatsApp for video calls, whatever it was, I saw a lot of that. Um, and then for me personally, I remember like, it wasn't even necessarily to do with the virus. It was just because I was like, oh, this, this would be a good idea. So this lady, it was her 94th birthday. I promise you, this is the fittest lady you've, you've ever met. She's mm. so healthy. Like she's healthier than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so her 94th birthday was coming up and it was her family's all over the country. And then she had a sister as well who is who was up north. And at that time, up north was kind of getting a lot of cases. And I thought, okay, look, what can I do to, obviously they can't celebrate her birthday together, all these family members. And it was just a case of, you know, going on Facebook to look for this relative, got her grandchildren involved, great grandchildren involved. Everybody was like, can you just send me a video to my WhatsApp, put it all together for her. And then gave it to her on the morning of her birthday because she was convinced. She was like, look, I'm not going to see my family. Really wanted to see her great grandbaby who's like, he's two years old. And I was like, okay, so I know I can get these people together somehow. Let's get this video going. And just seeing her face on that morning, for them, it was something they would have never thought about. Um, that, oh, actually, I can still stay connected with my family this way. But those things, there was a lot of examples like that of a lot of people just helping people stay connected because that's probably what was needed the most more than anything else. So I want to, I want to, I want to talk to you about the clap for carers initiative. What was your thoughts on that? Well, no, it's, it's, you know what, from a positive perspective, it's nice to see carers being celebrated because for a long time, if you looked at the media, anything that was around carers, support workers, whatever was always the negative stuff like abuse you know, we, if you look at even things that happen on the BBC shows on the BBC documentaries of hospitals and care assistants or nurses being bad, it was all negative, negative, negative. So for the first time, it was nice to see care workers being celebrated and people recognize that actually they are such a vital part of our society as a whole, forget COVID, but as a society, it was nice to see people celebrating that, oh, you know what, these people are a vital part of well, the world, the country we live in, you know? So for, for me, it, it was nice to see that because I've never seen, well, in my time, or maybe I just don't know enough, but I've never seen carers being celebrated. We can hear doctors or nurses or whatever, but not sort of the low level, you know, workers being supported. So for me, yeah, that's that was a nice thing to see for sure. Absolutely. So I want to touch on something you just mentioned um, when you gave the example of, doctors uh, and lower level staff. Now you've been in care for a number of years and you know how challenging it is. How do you, what do you feel about when the 
government categorize care work as low skilled? If you'd asked me this question in the beginning or like before I had much experience, I would have taken quite a lot of offense to that. Um, but now as I've um, had more experience and matured also in my perspective, I think it's simply a case of misinformation. If you've never experienced something, you, you, you know, it's like I've never, I don't know what it's like to do what you do. You know, I, I might say, oh, this is not a necessary thing, you know, because I don't know what's required of it. So that opinion is coming from a place of no experience because anybody who's experienced this will tell you this is by far not a low skilled uh, job at all. Um, so it's, it's a case of I can take offense or realize, that, no, no, these are just people that don't know better, you know. And I'm probably judging it based off, I don't know, metrics or, you know, if, if you haven't got a degree for this or if you haven't got that, then it doesn't mean it's a skill. But actually, if you look at the things required to be a really good living carer, you know, empathy, these are things that top level companies are training their companies for now. They're soft skills, Absolutely. you know, and it comes naturally to us. So I'm like, look, I don't now it's like, you know, they can say low skill, this and that. But I know, look, this is beyond anything it's beyond it's it's not low <laughs> it's not low skill at all you know absolutely and there are yeah. there are many people um uh, leaders of care associations who are really rallying on and pushing that message onto the government to sort of change that perception so it's just so refreshing hearing that from you so you know in the sector there is a recruitment and retention issue and one of the things that um, we've seen with our clients as well is we really do try to encourage look outside of the sector to bring more people oh, in yes. instead of just recycling the same batch of carers who are maybe job hopping and had a terrible experience and we've actually seen statistically that the companies that employ carers from outside of the sector give them some good training give them love they actually stay longer and they remain in the sector. And it's so fulfilling. It's something that I guess they wouldn't experience until they actually done the role. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I want to play devil's advocate at the same time because it definitely is fulfilling, but it's really challenging. In yes, terms of, sure. did you ever or your colleagues experience any uh, coronavirus-related deaths? Personally, not, not myself, but just hearing in my, you know, I've got a large community on Facebook where people talk about the challenges they're going through. And there have been some carers who have talked about what's happened and losing people to the virus, people they were caring for, um, or a family member or somebody they were caring for that type of stuff. So yeah, we've seen that happen. You, you know, like death in in care, regardless of how it comes about, it will, especially if you've grown very close with the, the family, it's as if you're losing your own family member. Um, so, it, and it's also again scary because especially if people who were thinking, oh no, this virus thing, it's not, it's not real. And then suddenly you're told, oh, this person's passed away because of coronavirus, it hit home. You know, it hit home for a lot of people and just making it real that, look, 
nobody is safe from this thing. You know, that's that's kind of like the general conversation that was going on in our community. It's 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 heartbreaking, and I I had um, in my extended family two uncles who passed away, and like you say, it is it does become such a reality when you know previously when you hear the news and they say you know deaths are going down, it's only down to three hundred. You think, okay, that's good. Deaths are going down. But knowing that within that number, there's friends and there's family in that, it becomes so real. And you just really get to, yes, you know, realise, wow, these are lives in the hundreds, in the thousands um, right now. So looking forward a little bit, yeah, what sort of constructive things or lessons learned do you think um, were received from this pandemic and experience? I want to, it's actually something Matt Hancock said. He did a speech at the, is it the Royal College of Physicians yeah. or something? And he talked about the seven lessons oh, learned. Right. For me, that was one of the best speeches ever. Right. Um, and he listed the seven things they've learned from this pandemic, which I'll just grab Absolutely. it for a second. Yeah, he was speaking at the Royal College of Physicians in July. And lesson one was value our people. And... Okay, what he says is the first is that we must value our people and trust them as professionals. Okay, and then he goes on to say a little bit more. And what he's talking about, he's not talking about, like I said, just doctors and nurses. He says, and when I say people, I mean all of our people, care workers, porters, cleaners, clinicians, leaders. So the whole sector, valuing them and seeing them as professionals, hearing that kind of stuff um, coming from government level, for me is very... It's, it's a positive thing. It's inspiring. It gives me hope because for years, we've not really seen the government's position or they've not really taken, you know, the low level people as skilled or whatever you want to call it. Basically, it's the word low level. It was hurting me a little bit. I think yeah. <laughs> in this, I've got a colleague yeah. in the space that talks about how powerful language is. And I think although it's, you know, been perceived, I'm doing quotation marks for anyone that's listened to the audio, as low level, we should change the language to just, you know, frontline staff and, you know, valued care staff. We, we need to just change the language, change the perception, because this, this is a time in history. And right now, these are the heroes. These are the heroes. It's true. There is a stigma associated with the term carer. And I think that comes from the fact that care has been reduced. When people hear the word carer, all they think of is changing incontinence pads, helping somebody to the toilet. That's it. When there's so much Absolutely. more to it, you know? So, yeah. So where can people learn more about Zuva? I'm sure you might get quite a lot of people reaching out to you. Carers, living carers. And also, I think some care providers would love your your perspective and fresh insight as well. So where can people get in contact with you? Oh, um, Facebook. I'm very, very heavily on Facebook if it's for like carers. Um, and I've got, I've, got, I've got a YouTube channel as well um, that I sort of post videos. But then again, that's more carer related. If care providers wanted to get in touch with me, I'm very... Uh, big on LinkedIn. So I'm well, not big. <laughs> I'm not big on LinkedIn. I am available on LinkedIn. Yeah. 
Awesome. Zuva, thank you so much. It's been refreshing. It's been so useful hearing your perspective. And I'm sure the listeners will get a load of value from this. So Zuva, thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks very much, Toby. I think Zuva's statement that there is a stigma around the word carer is so telling. Despite how much the country relies on the vital work carers do, it amazes me how we continue to lack respect for living carers. What living carers like Zuva have gone through in the past year is unbelievable. And I also wanted to learn what it was like to be a frontline worker in a care home. Although Jijo Johnny is the founder of our sponsor, Meet My Brian, he's also a care worker and was called to return to homes in the last 12 months due to staff shortages. I wanted to learn more about Meet My Brian and what working in care homes during a pandemic was actually like. But first, let's hear more on Jijo's background in care. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Awesome. So you can give the listeners a bit of background on your career history and an insight into how you got into the world of care. Yeah, sure. Um, I came to the UK in 2009 to do my BSc nursing in the University of Northampton. Uh, at the time, I, w- I started working as a care assistant in one of the nursing homes. It was an elderly care home in, um, in Northampton. Um, I became a qualified nurse in 2013. So it will be about um, 12 hours, uh, 12 years in the care home um, sector um, I'm, I'm working for this coming um, um, 2021 September. So that will be 12 years. Um, I, I only worked in a care home sector. You know, I didn't work in hospital. Or um, I also had an opportunity to go and work outside the care home sector, especially when I completed my MBA. Uh, but I always thought there is something for me to do in this sector. Um, then... Well, and here I am, and and to meet my brand, it was just a part of uh, my journey, <laughs> and um, I believe that is going to be something useful for the care home sector uh, from now on. So, what is the background um, and backstory of Meet My Brian? How did it come about? Uh, meet my brand. Uh, you see, I, I as I said, you know, I work in in this sector since two thousand nine as a care assistant. Um, um, before, I mean, even as a care assistant, as a nurse, then you see uh, the family connections in care home. Then the number of times they come to visit. So when I came to the UK, I saw uh, the family connections, uh, the love, uh, you know, towards elderly is is, is beyond um, what I, I what I knew, and I was so shocked and amazed about the, the intimacy between the the family members, and it is not a dumping place for them to you know put once they're elderly. So they always kept that connection going, and when this COVID pandemic um, hit the national moments, they closed the door. I couldn't believe myself that I'm working in the national because it was totally new to me uh, because it has never happened. I don't, I can't say uh, that I, there was a day um, that I didn't see any relatives or, uh, you know, at least one uh, family member will come to see their family members in national. So when it's a completely stopped, I started to think about uh, what's going to be the future, you know, because it, I was sure right from the beginning, the whole world was stopped and going into lockdown. I, I to me, I thought like it's not it's not a simple thing, you know. Uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna take some time to get back to normal. So how are we going to manage the family connection? So at the time, I thought we need to have a system, 
and that that was a time that um, um, I, I spoke to Pat Brown's wife, and I got the name. But that was the idea. So it's just a pandemic. Um, the, the separation from the families made me to think about having a system um, for the care home sector. And what does the system do briefly? Before the care home has never closed their doors um, to relatives, you know, they could come in any time and they could uh, visit their family members whenever they want to. Uh, but um, because we got this, um, the uh, the risk of um, COVID-19 and elderly are very vulnerable of contracting it and dying from it. So we can't have um, that old system. Well, it, that's what I believe, you know what I mean? Um, so we will be having like a controlled uh, visit. So they will have to make an appointment. They come and we will do the risk assessment. We'll ask them some questions uh, doing the temperature and all those things. So uh, that process could be cumbersome, um, especially when they're going to make the phone calls and everybody uh, need a sort of like a freedom, you know, uh, so they might make uh, an appointment um, to come and see their mum or dad uh, or uh, brother or sister or daughter or son, um, you know, today at 11 o'clock, but then something else come up. So maybe they will phone up and say like, sorry, we can't come. So all these things is going to create a lot of uh, problems inside the home because uh, the staff shortages and the, the level of care um, uh, required by the residents and the staff, uh, they need to get them ready and bring them down to the visitor's board or in a visitor's room and all those things could um, uh, could create a lot of problems. So, But the Meet My Brand is going to solve um, uh, all these uh, cumbersome processes having like an online facility, they can just book it online so the staff can see on the other side who is coming and whether they have done the risk assessment completed or not, whether they have been tested or not, and all those things will say. So that's what me, my brand is, is, is going to do. And what's the inspiration behind the name? Brian is one of the residents that I looked after at the time. Uh, Pat, uh, they, the families were constantly on the call, you know, on the phone and asking like how they are doing and everything. So this lady always asked, when do you think I can come and meet my Brian? How is my Brian? Mm. So that my Brian is word that, I mean, to me, that was quite catchy and um, seeing uh, their relationship, that love between them and every possible opportunity she could come and see them, uh, see him, and uh, he was so happy to see her, that kind of thing. So there was a, a beautiful love story. So I thought um, that's the best name to have it. That's lovely. So, well, actually, I'll be interested to know, when was the first time you heard the words COVID-19? I heard COVID-19, but I wasn't really bothered about it because I heard about Ebola, I heard about SARS, I heard about uh, dengue, and uh, it's a plenty of things, and Nipah virus in, in, in my place. But I never bothered because I, because in our mind, like we know that, oh, okay, it's there, it's in Africa, it's in China, it's in that place. I'm not going to be affected. That That's what my, my thoughts are. So I heard briefly about COVID-19 in, in December, I must admit that I wasn't paying a lot of um, attention towards the news and everything at the time because uh, I hope you know that I had another startup, uh, Gianna Care, which which I thought would be going live um, in um, um, February or March, you know, at that time. So I was sorting out the final paperwork and things, you know, I was quite, I was quite busy at the time, but I wasn't really paying attention a lot towards the the kind of um, uh, the impact this this virus is having. I was a bit late to understand. Um, how it is messing our world. My wife, um, uh, we were suspecting that, um, you know, she, she's pregnant at the time. So um, she was having rest and she had plenty of time to read all these things and going through, you know, to listen to all these news and things. So she was quite updated and me was a bit low, um, a bit slow to understand um, about COVID-19. But I think I understand the seriousness by the beginning of January. And what was the moment that you realised 
this thing was really serious. When I when I don't see any relatives in the care home for a few days, and I think that is the time I really understand how 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 difficult how tough that situation is, how difficult and how serious it is. So as we got moved into uh, March, the official lockdown happened. What was the reaction from the residents? Uh, where I worked uh, uh, at the time, um, two or three homes, uh, yeah, it's like a mild uh, dementia. Uh, the the people, uh, I clearly remember one resident losing that uh, that uh, the memory altogether. She 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 couldn't understand what is going on, especially at the time they were um, that nursing home worked isolating the resident inside the a room. They they didn't bring uh, them to the lounge. That was that continued for more than a week or something, and that was that was something I felt that serious because you know they had a kind of like a routine coming to the lounge mm. and you know participating in an activities and uh, seeing other residents and everything, and suddenly being in the in the room, I think that was something seriously affected. But I think it was only for like one week, um, two week, and at the time because there were no like uh, clear guidance at the time. Then the I think because when I worked in a different home at the same time, I didn't see that um, that kind of um, uh, this thing because the residents were coming to the lounge and everything. But so the nursing homes were managing in their own discretion at the time and. Um, because if they had like a flu-like symptom and they were doing uh, isolating and that, that kind of thing. So, yeah. For the people that um, are not aware, what was the government guidance at that time? I, I think there was a confusion, a, a lot of confusion, especially towards like the PPE. Mm. Even the government was saying the mask is not really necessary. Mm. I was working as a bank staff in one of the care homes at the time. Uh, so I was doing uh, one shift. I remember one staff um, came with a mask um, and the, the nurse in charge at the time, she said, you cannot work with the mask because at the time it was not mandatory and she bought it from there. And it's a kind of, it was a bit weird because we were about uh, five, six people and only one person with a mask and that person has bought it with it. Mm-hmm. So the nurse was saying you cannot wear the mask. But we can't blame anybody at the time, can we? Because um, nobody knew what to do. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, even the government wasn't really strict about the mask. Uh, many people thought that it is not going to um, um, stop spreading or anything. Some people that the mask is spreading um, the virus uh, if you are just wearing it and you're taking it to the another person, another person. So you are carrying the virus. That's what uh, the general assumptions were. Yeah, there was a period of time when you know is the is the mask mandatory at the beginning? It wasn't, and then that that yeah, when later you, changed. When do you think? When do yeah, when do you think that, uh, the, you realised as a person the importance of mask or uh, that is going to stop the spread of virus? I first learned about COVID quite late in um, in January of 2020. And I was a bit earlier than you. <laughs> yeah, then. that's right. <laughs> <clears throat> and at that time... Um, at that time, I was overhearing a conversation um, in our in our shared. We've got a, in our open plan office. We've got a shared kitchen, so other businesses were there. They were having a conversation, and at that point, I thought, "I'm I'm gonna just buy a couple of masks for the team," and it. I just I just thought to buy them just to have them just in case. And I think I got the idea from you know one of the one of the company directors. So. 
But I didn't think it was serious until around February for me, when I was going um, to celebrate my mum's 60th, we were going off to Jamaica and they closed the borders. And I thought, okay, this thing is, this thing is really serious. That was in February. In February, yeah, Jamaica yeah. closed the borders very uh, well earlier than say the UK, and I realised, okay, this is really um, affecting our lifestyles now. You know, the whole family. But do you think at that time? Do you think at the time that same level of seriousness I've given to the care homes at the time, like they closed the borders, uh, we stopped the visitors coming, the carers, you know, in the in the national. But do you think that uh, the precautionary measures? need to be taken in care homes and uh, the, the PPEs and everything was it was not much there in care homes was it from the from the clients I work with there wasn't from what they've said there wasn't that much guidance at all there, there you go that's people what I'm were figuring it yeah. out I would say the closer we got into March um you know clients were telling me that the prices have has shot up substantially um uh, what type of mask should we get? Uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of confusion. There was a, a hell of a lot of confusion. So as we as we move through the sort of timeline, March, April, May, what were some of the things that people didn't see that was going on in homes that probably wasn't reported in the media? What were some of the really heartbreaking stories that you experienced through working with many different care homes? I would say like that that missing um seeing that the their family members impacted there emotionally i rem i rem i can i can tell you that um uh, from my experience more than two or three residents um and how much they deteriorated uh having uh, you know not having that um the regular visit that they enjoyed so there is a limit uh, the staff can do to take that isolation away from the um, the, uh, the the residents. That that's how I've seen it. Um, we we have a limit because their relatives, their families, their husband, uh, their mother, uh, whoever that that is a totally different relationship. Seeing them, talking to them is a different feeling, isn't it? So, uh, missing that had a severe impact on residents. I can I can clearly say that. Mm. And what about? What about yourself? So during that period, you know, other people were locked down in their homes, maybe working from home, but you on the front line going out every day. How how was that for you? And did did your sort of loved ones have any concerns with you going out, effectively potentially risking your life on a daily basis? Uh, with all fairness, it was horrible, you know, because... Um, uh, my wife was pregnant at the time, mm. you see, and uh, um, I think India, uh, they are in India, my parents are in India, uh, overreacted, um, not overreacted, I mean, they were uh, like, suddenly they've just closed, uh, I mean, enforced lockdown. So um, the reason I'm saying, because my, my parents were very worried about um, at the time, like because my my wife was pregnant, mm. uh, the situation in India they were dealing in a completely different way. But in the UK, it was a bit more like a relaxed approach, um, and they're asking uh, um, like what kind of um, the protection PPE we have, and we didn't have any. But whereas in India, where the people were working like they all covered up, you know what I mean, like um, um, in a 
in the, in the white gown and the helmets and all those things. So that, that, there was a different kind, and ours was um, totally different in here in, in when we work in here. Um, so everybody was, and even my colleagues were saying, like, you have to be really careful because your wife is pregnant. And um, she also had a couple of miscarriages before, you know. So, the, the, I mean, that was um, emotionally quite um, uh, difficult. So that is, um, that is a difficult, difficult time. Um, how did I deal with it personally? I don't know. I was just get going, not not thinking a lot about it, and being cautious at work, uh, hand washing and telling the staff to make sure that you know they uh, do every possible thing to um, to avoid this transmission and, and kind of thing. You know, so there was nothing else. You know, just mm. um, just having that confidence and get going. And we commend you and and all the other uh, frontline staff for you know the brave work you guys have done you, you guys are the true heroes so what was your thoughts of the uh, clap with carers initiative clapping for carers i i i really like that thought you know the people just coming out um it was on every thursday mm. wasn't it and coming out and clapping their 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 hands uh, for all the healthcare workers and frontline workers and um it was it was good it was a good feeling but uh, to be frank, um, what I noticed that being a carer, you know, I'm 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 only talking about nation army. I'm not talking about any other friend line and um, any other thing. Uh, being a carer in the nation army, it's not that easy, and it's a hard work, and especially when you got the short staff and everything. But I don't think the carers being valued enough, um, you know, in the in the care home sector, and all of a sudden everybody's calling them mm-hmm. heroes. But then if you talk about, so how many care staff go extra payment? At least, you know, I'm not talking about money, but how many of them have go extra payment that's like, okay, we appreciate the work. Um, I think clapping hands were too easy, you know. Uh, let's say that, oh, I, I like that. So I think it's, um, it's, as I said, you know, it's a nice thought. I'm not saying that, but the carers, uh, the workload, even, uh, and they... Um, the work atmosphere and everything go even worse during the pandemic. Uh, but even before, as I said, they, they need a they need a bit more recognition and everything. At least even we say like, okay, that is a, a class that's like a skilled work. Uh, still not, is it? So um, yeah, I like that concept of clapping for uh, you know for the carers, uh, for the frontline staff. But I think the, the the care staff in the nursing homes need to be valued a bit more. Um, uh, that is one of the changes. No, that's that's a that's a great point, and you were very frank there. And, and let's be frank. Yeah. Uh, previously, there was no mention of frontline workers and care staff, care staff specifically. We and value, all of a sudden, we, we people value. are coming out. It's all right. It's okay. All of a sudden, people were coming out and clapping their hands. Yes. So let's just talk about what would people truly want. What truly needs to change to truly value care staff i mean uh to me like i started my career as as a care assistant i told you you know in 2009 mm. um and i said um, they are the force actually determine the quality of care in the nation uh, the manager's role is to to guide them to lead them and the senior management role is to set that vision as a company and get going. But the actual people who can uh, the the, the to, who can make the difference in the residents' life are the care staff. They're not. It's not enough. We need to have more 
uh, energy and investment um, put towards the care staff um, to change their, uh, uh, you know, to their attitude and and to develop a good culture in a, in a care home. That that's what I believe. I hope it's okay if I share. You also contracted COVID nineteen, and your wife as well, and your newborn. Yeah, which is when you told me, I was you know so shocked. Um. And I'm, I'm sure it must have been horrific in that, uh, at home as well. So just tell us a little bit about that experience. How did it happen? How did you find out what was going on behind closed doors? Yeah, there, there is one employer that I, I do bank shift, you know, so I go and help her and um, I, I know that home very well. Uh, for, uh, because of I was busy with me, my Brian at the time, uh, I was not doing a lot, you know, it's just only go and do it only when I don't have any presentations and things like that. So they had an outbreak at the time, most of the staff went on sick. So she asked me to come and cover a few shifts because she couldn't get any, uh, uh, you know, the nurses at the time. And they had to bring a lot many um, agency staff from outside to cover, uh, you know, the staff who went on sick. Yeah. Absolutely. I know that period, there was loads of um, care staff who were shielding. Yeah. So they, they, we needed new care staff to come in. So you, yeah. you went, you went into support. Yeah, so I'm talking about in December. Yeah, this uh, this mm. December. So it's uh, the second wave. Yeah, so I mm. didn't expect that I would get it, but I got it. Um, then my wife got it, and my my son got it. It, it was a, a hard and horrible time. Um, it's not just for me. I'm also talking about the organisation at the time. Um, you know, because more than ninety five percent of the staff worked in there also got this um, COVID at the time. So. Um, you see, dealing with that, that that fear of, you know, you got COVID and you have to be careful and you got this um, um, wife to look after and a, a little boy. Um, my, my wife had um, um, a temperature more than uh, 39.5. And at the same time, my, wow. my son um, also had a high temperature. So in, I was not in a position to move. Um, you know, from my bed because I, you know, it's mm. a heavy back headache, heavy body pain. And you can't even expect anybody to come and help you because they can't enter into your house and, uh, you know, and you don't have a much of family here. So it was, a, it was a very difficult situation, Toby. I tell you that. So, um, How many difficult. months old was your little boy at the time? Four, 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 four and a half, yeah. Four, four and a wow. half. Wow. Yeah. He had that temperature and that was a bit worrying, yeah. So we had to call 111 and get their advice. Yeah, that must have been super terrifying. So I, I, you know, having a, having a newborn alone is a challenge for, you know, parents, let alone having COVID-19. And we're recording this in February of 2021. We're in another national lockdown. What do you think needs to be done differently this time to protect more lives? Uh, I would say the one thing is that um, we 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 have to live with this virus for uh, for some time, you know, for for considerably long time. So we need to we need to try and address the issues pragmatically, uh, you know, um, uh, evidence based. Um, I think uh, it's all about living with this virus and finding um, the practical way to manage the economy and our life. And if you had a seat at the table and, and could speak to Boris Johnson, what would you tell him about the care sector? 
You know, during these 33 years of my life, what I have realized is that loving somebody unconditionally, caring for other people unconditionally is hard. It's not, it's not easy. I was reading a, a blog and I, it was quite fascinating because they say like, you know, more than 60% of the people work, um, uh, of the workforce are disengaged. So imagine mm. that you performing a caring job and that person is disengaged. So what we need is that any, you could be working in a petrol station. Uh, you could mm. be working in a store. You could be disengaged, but you can still do that job. A skilled job in a way, it, it, it's a lot of things. You know, a resident could be uh, having that dementia and having this anxiety attack. Uh, you know, uh, how much time you are genuinely spending with that patient to reassure them. And how much can you do it if you are disengaged? Do you know, do you know what I mean? You could, yeah. you could take a, one thing from the shelf and give it to a customer. You could be 100% absent-minded or maybe 95% disengaged. You can still do it. You, you, you put that price on the steel and somebody just tapped their car. Yeah. It's processed the payment. You could be thinking thousands of things in your mind at the time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But when you're really reassuring somebody, when you are trying to uh, spend some time and make one patient to eat and drink it's with that intention to uh, to improve their, their nutritional intake um, or to reassure them, to help them to calm down, uh, that is that is not easy. That that's all I'm trying mm. to say. So what what we need is a a good workforce, and we need good people. We need to spend some time, and uh, you know the supervision is supposed to be done in a way that um, uh, that is uh, that that we need that change. That we have, we, have, we desperately need that change in that sector. It's not just to Boris Johnson; it's to everybody. But um, to Boris Johnson, at a government level, I would say like you know we need to um, class that as a um, um, a skilled job and we need to invest a um, lot of time and energy in there to making and creating a workforce uh, that, is, uh, that is caring and compassionate. I completely agree with Jijo and Zuva. We need to acknowledge the work carers have done in the past year with more than just clapping. We need to recognize them as skilled workers who make an indispensable contribution to thousands of lives on a daily basis. And we need to remunerate them accordingly. Zuva, Jijo, thank you so much for your brave and important work over the past year. And thank you at home for joining me on the show. Next week on the podcast, I meet Vic Raynard, the Executive Director of the National Care Forum. Vic and I had a fascinating conversation where we delve into her experience of the pandemic and how the National Care Forum responded. We discuss how important technology was for the sector and Vic explains why we need a care home soap opera. Before we go, there's just a few quick notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Tea With Toby podcast so you automatically get notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to know more about you and what you all think of the show. So be sure to send me your comments at toby at teawithtoby.com. Please check out our website, teawithtoby.com, where you can find out more about me, Toby, our sponsor, Meet My Brian, and what we do at Smooth Digital. I've started a newsletter that goes straight into your inbox. So do sign up at our website as well at teawithtoby.com. You've been listening to Tea With Toby, the podcast presented by me, Toby Eliosman, and produced by One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, 
James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the audio and visual engineer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher. Additional creative support from Selena Christophers, Jade Cornish, and Miranda Lopez. This episode was recorded by Connor Foley. Thanks for listening to Tea with Toby.